Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Listen to learn about my right fit method from my guest interviews. Changing core identities. My guest today is Grace Tiscarino Sato, Senior Global Marketing Manager of Unified Communications with the Siemens Enterprise Communications Group. Grace made dramatic career changes in search of herself, which she passionately describes through her storyteller role in my book, Win Without Competing. I met Grace in an interesting way. The National Society of Hispanic MBAs known as Nishimba, invited me to conduct a workshop on my right fit method. Grace introduced herself at the meeting and asked if she could interview me for Nishimba's national newsletter. Subsequently, she conducted the interview by phone, and I told her that I was writing a book about my right fit method. I learned about her as she was interviewing me and asked if she would write her career story. I watched my email box in anticipation. When Grace's story arrived, I read it quickly and called her immediately to find out more. I think you'll find her story fascinating. Grace is the oldest of five children. Her father was a tailor, and her mother became a seamstress after many years as a homemaker. Grace, tell us what career advice your drafting instructor gave you in the ninth grade, and how did it match what your parents told you? Thanks, Arlene. It's a pleasure to spend part of my afternoon with you today. Let's see, I was the only girl in that drafting class. I was a a young, declared architect wannabe, and he knew I excelled in math and science. His name was Mr. Jorgensen. He made it a point to counsel me during class as we did our drawings, telling me that those who went on to study architecture did so not only because they were highly creative and could draw well, but also because they had solid math and science skills. Um, and those were needed for the technical work of architecture. So basically, I mean, he recognized my strengths and my passion for things that were both technical and creative in nature. And he really encouraged me to stay on track towards those dreams, encouraging me to pursue that degree. And in many ways, this advice really was piggybacking on what my parents had told me growing up as the oldest of five kids. Um, my parents are from Mexico, and they had instilled in us that really nothing was more important than our education. I remember my father teaching me my numbers long before kindergarten and drawing with my mother frequently. So I think it started there. And, in fact, you know, as I was thinking about this question, um, 
our entire basement in Colorado was unfinished. There was just drywall. And we turned the whole basement into an art studio. So we freely drew on the walls, played school, did math homework, wrote the alphabet. I really did grow up in a very uh, creative environment for myself and my four siblings. Are your four siblings um, similar to you in terms of how they approach their life, Grace, would you say? Because, I mean, our audience doesn't quite know yet how intriguing your choices and career has been, but I would be curious to know what your siblings are doing career-wise. That's a great question. So my sister was um, studying science uh, biology at Catholic University at one time, and she has gone on to run a tax office, and now she's doing modeling. So (laughs) there's some core identity change. So, yes, I think in many ways uh, my siblings also had the same foundation and were able to explore the different options that came along. Um, I have another brother who is in the Navy. Um, he's a medical, medically trained Marine. He's been to Iraq, and he's a software developer. Um, so, you, yeah, it's kind of a, a, a thread, isn't it? Just uh, the ability to do a variety of, of things. I think that definitely got laid early on in life. Let's go a bit further. Let's take you back to your senior year in high school. Uh, tell us what happened there. Oh, yes. Uh, my high school counselor, her name is Virginia Burgess, and she invited me to come to her home for dinner one evening shortly after my senior year began. And this is because we had discussed my desire to attend college out of state. I really had my heart set on UC Berkeley because it had the number one rated program in the country and, of course, architecture. But there was just one problem. There was no way my parents could pay the out-of-state tuition and all the other expenses. She knew it. I knew it. But she also knew I was determined to find a way. So she asked me if I knew what the Reserve Officer Training Corps program was and the scholarships for that program were. And, of course, I didn't know anything about that. Funny, you know, I'd been the student that avoided the tables in the cafeteria staffed by military recruiters because I thought only people who didn't go to college joined the military. Ah, um, so you made, you made an erroneous assumption then, Grace, which is also related in an important part of my method about uh, make no assumptions, open those doors. Exactly, and, and I call that, of course, the, the ignorance of youth, right? And, and the truth is, I mean, I didn't know anybody in the military. You know, um, my counselor told me that the Rossi was a program for college-bound officers who were the leaders in the military and that there was a difference. So I was, of course, interested, and so there I was at her house, and I met her husband, who was a major in the Air Force, and I learned the details of this Air Force ROTC scholarship and how it would pay all my tuition and fees at the college of my choice. So within a few months of that meeting and learning about the Rossi program and going through the lengthy application process, I was notified that I'd been selected to receive this full tuition scholarship to study architecture. And in an amazing coincidence, the letter notifying me that I'd been accepted to UC Berkeley arrived the same day. So Mrs. Burgess and I couldn't have been happier. How did you feel when you could see your first big dream coming true. It was really amazing. I, I really, I still cannot believe that it all happened the same day. You know, to actually be accepted to your first choice school and to get the funding for it. Um, it was one of those very, very important slow motion kind of days in your life. Um, I, I remember turning west because we lived on the east side of the Rockies. I remember turning west and just looking at the mountains and. I had never been over those mountains. I'd been to those mountains, never over those mountains. And I remember just having this very, just a, a deep thought that I'm going to get to go over there and see what else is on, you know, what, what's on the other side of those mountains. And this is actually going to happen. And just really being um, thrilled at the possibilities. Because honestly, I didn't know what, what lied ahead. It just sounded exciting. I was 18 years old, right? It was something new. But it really was... Um, a sense of looking ahead and being excited about what might happen next. So you were eager and ready to go. Quite. 
good. Your My only... parents, not so much, but I sure was. Aha. Uh-huh. Were your parents happy, though? I mean, were they delighted that you had the opportunity to go to college and to have it paid for via the military? They were certainly excited. It's just that I think, you know, deep down my mother just really wasn't ready to see me go. I don't think moms really are. But certainly there was a lot of pride in in our home for, for a long time after that. You're always planning ahead and getting ready for a new core identity. Tell us about your military career and what you did concurrently and why in your quest for always looking ahead. So when I graduated from Berkeley, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force, and that meant I was the lowest-ranking officer, but I was still an officer. And uh, what I got to do next was to go to flight training and be qualified to be an air crew member on the KC-135 refueling jets. And what that airplane does, Arlene, it's the airplane you might have seen uh, TV shows on this. It connects to other airplanes to fuel um, fighters, bombers, um, anything that needs fuel so they can get to where they need to go quickly. So that was my job. I flew on that um, aircraft, and I went to flight training, and eventually I became an instructor and, and trained others to do that. And, of course, that involved deploying to dozens of nations and um multiple weeks, multiple months of deployments in literally dozens of places. How did you figure out that you wanted to go into flight training? Ah, yes, there is that step. So yes, I we don't want to forget that because I'm sure our, list, our listeners are eager to hear how you made that decision. I don't think everyone is eager to go into flight training. Right, exactly. And, again, I didn't know about flight training. I, you know, I was going to study architecture. I did study architecture that was indeed my degree, but what happened was halfway through the ROTC training, uh, after you complete your second year, you go to a summer, a summer boot camp kind of thing. And in that environment um, in Arizona, they let whoever wants to fly go fly with an instructor pilot. And so I had a flight with uh, a young lady. She was a lieutenant in a little mini fighter airplane trainer. And that was my first exposure to military aircraft and military flying, and I'll tell you that I was completely hooked. Um, I had always loved roller coasters and things like this, but this flying adventure and actually controlling the plane was, was a whole other thing. And, and she, of course, you know, they, the instructors do let the cadets fly. So what happened is you, you come back from that camp, and they let the students decide if they want at the halfway point of their program to be considered for a flying position. You don't have to change your major. You still study what you're studying, and it was still a technical degree with um, you know, the creative side there. But it was an opportunity, and the staff asked me, you know, they, they basically said, well, you did really well at camp, and, and your academics are good, and you've got the right type of major to be considered for a flying position, so what do you think? And I said, sure, why not? You know, why not go ahead and apply for a flying position? Let's see what happens. And what happened, Arlene, was that I was one of 29 women that was chosen that year out of the entire country to go to flight training. So it was definitely, um, you know, an opportunity that, that presented itself because I had the strong math and science skills and I was doing well academically. And I figured, well, I could do that now and I could always do architecture and architectural engineering later. And that's how I made that switch. I didn't switch my major. I want to emphasize that. I, I kept doing that because that was true to what I wanted to study, but the opportunity to go fly and actually being selected, I couldn't pass that up. I love the word opportunity. You're outstanding in terms of really connecting and figuring out when an opportunity is the right fit for you. Can you, t- can you tell us more about that, Grace? Quite often, People are not clear as to whether something is the right fit for them. How did you figure this out? In the terms of my right fit method, I use the word blueprint. What kind of blueprint did you have in your head to make that decision? 
the most important thing about that decision at the time was that I felt ready for it. I felt that I had just been given this exposure to this flying career that I'd never even considered and that it was definitely fascinating that I didn't have to switch gears academically, right, to go do that um, because I wouldn't have done that. Um, but I, I really remember thinking through, here's this amazing thing that I can do that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I will be so proud that I got a chance to fly for the Air Force. And, and really being able to project in the future how I will feel about that decision today. That is a technique I've used many times. Yeah, let's, and, uh, let's, let's talk more about that. I wasn't, I mean, I've known you now for quite a while, and I don't really remember you talking about that, about being able to project how you're going to feel in the future. How did you figure this out? It's a wonderful technique. How did I figure that out? I, I don't know. I think that I, I had to because, you know, imagine that you're 20 years old and you, you've you seen that you're going to major in a certain um, degree and you have a certain path and um, and all of a sudden you, you're switching gears. So what can you do? You need to have a way to decide if it's the right decision. I'll tell you what else I did. I, I'm very good at listening. And I remember in that same camp time there was a woman that I met who was doing the job that I thought I wanted to do, the architectural engineering in the military. And she said, well, if you want to do the degree, that's great, but realize that if you're on active duty in the military, that the actual design of new buildings, that, that's what I wanted to do, that gets contracted to outside contractors. The military engineers get stuck fixing the buildings and filling potholes. And she gave me a very good piece of advice. She said, you can do it if you want, but just understand what you're getting into. And so I kind of started having a bit of doubt there about the actual, you know, applying of that degree in the military. And so when this opportunity came, I thought, well, why not go fly? I'm still going to be in the Air Force. I want to be in the Air Force, so I might as well jump on this opportunity. And how would I feel about it? And having been given that advice that it might not be what I think it is, you know, kind of an informational interview, Right. I was paying attention. I was paying attention, and so I thought, well, this other opportunity sounds like something that if I pass it up, I could see I would have a great deal of regret if I passed up the flying versus, you know, that if I jumped on it that I wouldn't have that regret. And I think that is something that I've been able to do over and over again in my life is, is will I regret this decision if I pass this up or will I regret it if I don't pass it up? And... Um, I, I think it just takes practice, and it takes, um, I guess, inner confidence to be able to, to make that decision. Because once you make it, you're kind of stuck with it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, you're, you're well, you're stuck with it for a certain period of time. For a certain period of time. Yeah, no. you're not stuck with it forever. Exactly. Um, okay. Let's go a bit further. Um, can you share some interesting stories about uh, your military experience? Sure. So while I was flying, I was able to go to lots of different places, but I always knew, you know, looking ahead, like you said earlier, I knew that I wanted to also travel to places that were, um, how shall we say, outside of the typical places that people in flying positions went to. And by that I mean I started looking at how can I use my language skills. I speak fluent Spanish. And so one of the things I did is I went to work for the U.S. Embassy in Quito, Ecuador. And I did that while I was pursuing a master's degree in international business management. Now, you know, this was basically me going to my commander and saying, okay, I've been flying now for, you know, six years, seven years. I'd like to do something different. So you're going to see a pattern here. Um, so I asked to basically just stop flying for a few months deployed to Ecuador in an embassy position that was posted. They needed somebody to do it. And specifically, they needed somebody that spoke Spanish who was on flight status because there was flying involved and interfacing with the Ecuadorian Air Force involved. So it was one of those unique, again, opportunities that I found, and I was able to go do it. So I found myself at the end of my flying time. You know, I still enjoyed the flying, but I was looking for those additional challenges. 
and working for the embassy in Quito, Ecuador, and working for NATO in Italy were the kind of things I started seeking later. And what that led me to believe was that I wasn't just doing this master's degree in international business for fun, that I really wanted to work internationally, and I started putting those pieces together um, you know, towards the end. The actual uh, military career was fantastic. Um, I got to go to Saudi Arabia um, many times and Turkey and many European countries, and I've been all over Asia. So I really was exposed to many, many different cultures, and again, that cemented for me at the time I was getting my master's that I was needing to work internationally afterwards. What did you do after you left the military? So after I left, I had this great plan that I was going to take six months off <laughs> and enjoy some downhill skiing and just meditate on what I wanted to do next. And then I would start interviewing for new positions after I had some time to decompress. Um, I, I was actually fortunate because I'd been actively networking with the civilian community outside the base for quite some time and had been very active in um, a nonprofit organization there. I'd also kept in touch with colleagues that had left the military ahead of me and had found employment in a local community. So what I'd been brought into a special group of women that met monthly to just move each other's lives forward. And I was invited by them to become you know, part of that group as I made the transition. So my, my plan to just take six months off um, was thwarted one night when I was trolling the web, and I found Nishimba. I heard in your introduction to the National Society of Hispanic MBAs. It was about a week after I got out of the Air Force that I was looking around at some things, and I really quite accidentally discovered this organization, which is so important to me now. Um, they were hosting their annual um, career conference in Denver that year, and the website said that 400 companies would be there specifically recruiting candidates of Hispanic descent with master's degrees. And I thought, who knew? Who knew there was such an organization? So there I was on a plane to Denver <laughs> two weeks after getting out. So Again, I, taking advantage of an opportunity that was presented to you. Exactly, and torpedoing my own six-month vacation plan. But, but it was good because I, I was able to uh, start doing interviews and become confident in the interview process by doing that. You turned down a great job with a $40,000 sign-on bonus. Tell us about that. What, what was the job and why did you turn it down? Yes, I, I really did do that. Well, within a few weeks of attending that conference that I mentioned, I had flown to second and third round interviews with a major defense contractor that really wanted to hire me into a supply, a supply chain management work in Phoenix. And the offer included this uh, fat signing bonus, complete relocation package, the whole thing. But, I mean, while I was doing that, I'd also been meeting with the Hubble Group and conducting informational interviews with people they introduced me to. And I had repeatedly said that I was very passionate about global marketing. And now that I was almost finished with my degree, actually, I, yeah, I was finished at that point, and that I was very passionate about the communications industry. So it was like I was contradicting myself, right? Um, so imagine their surprise when I show up one day to this meeting and I tell them that I have this job offer in Phoenix with a defense contractor. You know, the, the questions are harsh. You know, they said, why would you even consider such a thing? And what does that have to do with your passion for marketing and for communications? So they really made me question what I had been doing. You know, who will you know in five years? And, and so I really, you know, I realized then that I'd made a grave error and I allowed myself to be lured into the defense contracting industry. It's kind of an obvious choice for military officers. But uh, luckily, I had them on my side, and they were watching out for me. So really, I did the unthinkable for somebody in that position at the time, and I declined the job offer, just declined well, it politely. Well, you Knowing, declined the job offer because it wasn't the right fit, correct? It was so not the right fit. Okay, and so it was, it was totally the wrong fit. It was so wrong. 
Okay. Tell yeah. us why it was totally so wrong. Okay. Well, again, when you have this group of ladies that is helping you and you state your passion, and I was very clear, I, I'd done a lot of researching and interviewing, and I knew the industry that I was focused on. I had done that during my studies, and I knew the functional role I wanted. So it was obviously the wrong fit to anybody who'd been listening to me for more than five minutes. And the reason I had been lured into it is just because I was curious. I was curious to know what am I worth in that industry that is where so many of my colleagues have gone before, right? But that's the important point is that I didn't allow myself to be lured. I, I had the presence of mind and that group behind me to stop and really question whether it was the right fit. And at the end of the day, it, it was the wrong fit. I knew it was the wrong fit, and it became an incredibly easy decision to make, and I felt truly empowered by doing it. I was able to look the offer in the face and say, that's not good enough, that's just money, that's not me. Why did they offer you such a large sign-on bonus? What did you bring to the table that they wanted? A few things. First of all, the MBA. Second of all, the cultural um, knowledge of how you work across different countries because certainly it was a supply chain management position and a lot of their suppliers came from overseas. So there would be a lot of actual travel to different places and I was completely comfortable with that. Um, a top secret clearance, um, things like this. And, of course, uh, multiple languages. So it was, uh, it was various, various elements of it. But again, that's what was good for them. It wasn't what I was looking for. Well, that's my point. You know, sometimes uh, people become flattered when they receive a significant bonus and people really treat them with the uh, eagerness to hire them, forgetting that they at the same time have to decide whether it's the right fit marriage for them. So I think it's terrific that you were not lured by both the money and the attention that you were given. Right. Yeah, that uh, that takes a great deal of um, of courage, you know. And at the time, I didn't see that it was a courageous thing. I just, again, I was being coached, I was being mentored, and I was grateful that I didn't make a mistake. But it's one of those things that you do in your life that you look back and you say, "Wow, that's." That's amazing that I was able to make that decision, and thank goodness, because that, that would not have led me anywhere that I wanted to be um, at all. How old were you at that point? How old was I at that point? I want to say 30, 31. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's go Years. a bit further. Yeah. Let's okay. talk about Siemens. What did you do? to hear you're hired at Siemens. Okay, well, after a couple of months of attending more conferences and interviewing with hiring managers and, and just getting job offers and turning them down, you know, I really had built up a confidence in the interview process and the type of questions that are asked. And, and, and again, if you think about it, coming out of the military, uh, you go from college to the military, when did I ever interview for a job? I hadn't. So that's that process to me was very important, and I, I did it as long as I thought I needed to to really become comfortable so that I would be comfortable uh, when the right opportunity that I knew was out there would present itself. So it was time to get serious and go after what I knew was out there for me. So I turned to my personal network of friends in the Bay Area. And Arlene, really all I did is I wrote a simple short email describing the position I was seeking just described it. I'm looking for this, you know, this kind of functional role, this kind of organization, and just described it, very short. And within just a few minutes, one of my friends wrote back saying, you won't believe this, but I just finished writing a job description for a position I'm about to begin interviewing for that matches exactly what you're looking for. Take a look. And she attached a description, and when I opened it, I couldn't believe it. And there it was, global marketing manager, unified messaging applications, the functional role I was seeking at one of the world's largest communications companies. Tell us a little bit about Siemens, and then tell us how you closed the deal, Grace. 
Okay, so I flew down there and interviewed with um, about six different people. And at the time, Arlene, uh, this the company. Um, well, let me let me back up and explain what Siemens is. Uh, Siemens is a, an 162-year-old, highly innovative electrical engineering company headquartered in Germany. And if you understand how large, complex, and diversified General Electric is in the U.S. and throughout the world, then you understand what I mean when I say that Siemens is Germany's GE. Absolutely. So, so when I first joined the company, my business unit was one of six very large global business units focused exclusively on inventing, developing, marketing, and selling communications technologies for the world's largest businesses. And we were part of this huge conglomerate of 50-some thousand people. And I came on board, Arlene, to manage this one application and um, lead its global market introduction. So today we're a very different uh, company, and I'll, I'll talk about that later if you wish. But the way I closed the deal is I, I realized very quickly that your personal network will get you possibly you know, in the door and will get you the interview. But that's, that's going to be all it gets you. From there on, it really is up to you to be a likable, competent person, right? So uh, what I learned was that people really do hire people they like. And I have a very vivid memory of how important that was when I walked into the second or third interview, and the question the woman asked me was, so tell me about fly fishing in Washington State. I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> Seriously, that's how she started the interview, just casual conversation about one of the hobbies I had listed at the end of my resume. So a lot of that conversation was selling myself um, you know, how do you sell yourself when you don't have functional experience and you don't have any industry experience? Well, I sold myself in, in demonstrating that I had the education needed to work in business and that I had a track record of 10 years in active duty um, in the military of leading people, of leading teams, of leading teams in crisis situations. And very importantly, that I had for 10 years been learning new technologies and teaching them to other people. And for me, that the technical part of joining this team was just another technology that I could learn. And I really sold them on that fact, that um, I, I can learn this. You know, For me, it's just another technology. And I'm sure that there's people that will teach me, and I'll learn it very quickly. And that was a big part of closing the deal. They had to take a leap of faith. But uh, importantly, they had to also like me. And I think that that's overlooked many times by people in interview processes, certainly people I've interviewed, is people are so focused on appearing qualified that they forget to come across as likable. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Well, I think the chemistry is a little bit tricky. Um, obviously, someone who's astute can modify how they interact so that they fit in and also elicit the likability factor. But I think that it's very important that you don't role play, that you are who you are. Exactly. I mean, I think they liked you because you're likable. I don't think you worked to make yourself likable, did you? No, not at all. I mean, the, the question about the fly fishing, that was very much me. I was very happy to talk about something like that. And from there we discussed other things. But you're right. It was it was a very normal moment. It was a surprise to me because that hadn't happened before. But, um, yeah, it, it was very real, and it just gets to um, – it lets the candidate be themselves. And that's very important. You're right. Yeah, it, it's key. I think sometimes uh, people forget that they have to be themselves. But I think what's important in terms of what you did was you packaged yourself to pitch. In other words, you knew very clearly what you wanted to tell them so that they would understand that you could do the job even though you didn't just arrive from another company doing exactly what they wanted you to do. Right. You showed them you had the ingredients to do what needed to be done. Exactly. exactly. And you manage the process. It also sounds as if you did a good job of taking charge of the interview, but you did it, I think, in a subtle way. 
Oh, I asked a ton of questions because that's my point. That's yep, exactly right. I knew I knew that this was this is the reason that I had been doing everything that I've been doing the months before. It it really was this position. This is the one I imagined that I was going to be doing, and I was not going to to blow the opportunity. So you're right. Uh, everything you described is you know as I reflect back, that's exactly what it was. Um, because I was ready, and there it was, and I was grateful for the opportunity, and I did everything that I could to prepare for, you know, for success. What kinds of questions did you ask, Grace? Do you remember? In other words, where were you trying to go with the questions? What were you really trying to find out about them to figure out if, in fact, they really were the right fit? Because the position could description could be the right fit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that when you probed that the right fit was subsequently confirmed. There is one question I distinctly remember asking everybody that I met with, and it was this. You're working in the middle of Silicon Valley, and you know I asked them how long they've been there, and people had been there anywhere from 3 to 11 years. Um, is what I remember. And the question I asked them, Arlene, is I'm sure that you get calls from people and you have other places you could go work. Why are you at this company still here now? What keeps you with Siemens? And I asked that question of every single person that interviewed me. And that's where I really learned a lot about the organization and what keeps people there. Did the people that you asked the question to did you phrase it in the same way each time, or did you modify it? And were the responses the same or similar? How did the responses uh, check out, so to speak? Well, what I remember doing was sharing with each person that I asked, you know, second, third, and fourth, just stating that, you know, when I was interviewing with so-and-so, I made a point to ask this question, and, and it was very fascinating what she said. I'd like to ask you the same question because I feel that I'm learning a lot about the organization and asking this question. So I, I prefaced it by saying that I'm basically pulling everybody <laughs> so that they would understand that I'm trying to get a big picture view of the organization because these folks were from product management. They were from marketing. There was an executive so it, it was definitely going to provide me a, a bigger view of what I was thinking I was getting into versus, you're right, what the qualifications and the description stated. So I, I, I'm sure that I changed the question only slightly, but I remember that I informed them that I was asking everybody else just so when they all got together and talked later that nobody would be surprised or whatever. Again, looking ahead, Grace. You're looking ahead. It's wonderful. In other words, you were planning knowing that they would discuss what questions you asked, and you wanted to be sure that they understood why you were asking each one the same question. I don't know if you, well, you did, obviously. You, you thought about that, again, planning ahead. Well, the reason I knew that was because I had done so many practice interviews with so many other companies you know, to prepare for this moment. And if I had not done that, if I had just really and truly taken six months off and just started out cold, I don't think I would have been that perceptive. But because of the, the preparation um, and really just seeing how does this whole process work and, and how is it that an offer actually comes and when an offer doesn't come, what happened, and really a lot of that learning. So really it wasn't like I got lucky that I knew that. I knew that because I'd seen other teams do it and I knew that they discussed candidates. And, and so, yeah, I was very methodical about that in, in terms of um, understanding that that process would happen and being aware of the process and actively participating and you know managing it. You have been with Siemens for nine years. How have you changed your role and responsibilities so that Siemens continues to be your right fit employer? Now, this is an interesting question because both my employer and I have undergone a lot of transformations in the last nine years. 
And there's actually two answers to this question of why Siemens continues to be the right fit for me. Um, so when I first joined, I described that they were part of the big conglomerate. Um, and today we're a very different company. We're very entrepreneurial, very nimble, and much smaller. And we're now owned only 49% by Germany's uh, Siemens AG and 51% by the Gores Group in Los Angeles. And we're actually part of a joint venture um, in which the Gores Group is merging us with two other smaller networking equipment and software companies to offer state-of-the-art environmentally superior software and services. So we really are a different organization. And, and that's a lot of change that I've seen in nine years. So how have I managed to change my roles and responsibility as all of that was happening? Um, well, in this time, you know, I started out with that one application, the one product in the beginning. And at one point, I actually managed the, the product marketing and the market introductions of seven products at once. Um, I've written speeches for the CEO to present to the world's most influential industry analysts and press. I've published articles. I've done um, presentations for our installed customer base and prospects and a lot of public speaking. I've also, strangely enough, worked for the chief technology officer of the company, so that was a, a non-marketing stint for a while. Um, and I've now extended my skill set into strategic marketing, Arlene, and I'm leading what we call our green enterprise initiatives. Um, so I'm charged with demonstrating how our solutions are better for our planet than the competitive options, you know, while making business more efficient with limited human and energy resources. So really, I've always sought out new challenges, typically way outside my actual job description at the time. And, and really, I did this back in the Air Force, too. You know, back in the Air Force, I was flying, but I was also training to be the, a spokesperson at the base to talk to the media, to represent the media. I started a newsletter, again, the technical, the creative balance, right? So, I, I you know, it's, it's something that I've done at Siemens, too, to, to make it the right fit is, what else can I do? What's the next challenge? And um, you know, I think that a lot of companies are, are evolving too, and individuals can't do much about that, but we can control, you know, how we fit in and, and what we do. So to answer your question, you know, how do I manage this process to keep things interesting? Well, first, I really believe strongly it is an ongoing conversation. Um, when I feel that I'm on the verge of stagnation, I ask, why do I feel this way? Know, what's changed? What's wrong? What needs to change? And I get back in touch with myself and my passion first. Um, I'm a highly creative person, and I need to constantly find ways to stay challenged. And I understand that it's up to me to own that responsibility. I'm not waiting for somebody else to come by and challenge me. So then I set up an appointment with my manager, and I discuss the concerns specifically. And I'll tell you, I've been very fortunate to have managers that have listened to my concerns. They've heard me say, you know, flat out, I'm starting to get bored. <laughs> and then they worked with me to keep me on, you know, high impact, visible projects that continue to be challenging. So really owning it, talking about it, not keeping it to myself and getting mad about it, just really bringing it out there and working and asking for, for that next challenge, that next opportunity. And the second answer to your question um, about why this company continues to be the right fit, I believe, is just as important, and that's this. When I get calls from search consultants, I put them through a uh, special filter immediately to save us both time. Once they do their introduction, I ask two questions. I ask, does the CEO of this organization understand the importance of extending their communications outside the company so that employees can work from home. And then I ask, do they have teleworking initiatives in place, telecommuting, basically? And if they don't, I politely end the conversation. And for me, that's really been a big one that has made my employer the right fit for all of these years. And I cannot understate the importance of that flexibility. And really, why is that? Well, highly creative people create when they're inspired. You know, we don't create on someone else's normal workday schedule, whatever that means. And, and that's very important to me. Um, and my company understands that, you know, we make the technology that makes telecommuting possible. So we really understand that. 
and they've allowed me that flexibility so I can remain happy, you know, here at this organization. So yes, we still are the right fit for each other after all these years and all those changes. Grace, I feel like you're talking about your husband. It's wonderful how you're talking about famous. <laughs> this is terrific. Tell us more about the role of passion. You've mentioned it a number of times during our conversation. And it's not uncommon when I'm coaching uh, clients that I'm challenged when they tell me they don't know about what they feel passionate about. See if you can help us here, Grace. Wow. Um, yeah, I know what you mean because I've, I've had similar conversations with, with friends and, and colleagues. So let's see, what role has passion played? I think that passion is front and center in everything I've ever done. I think it's really that simple. You know, when in the Air Force, I loved the refueling missions. I enjoyed the deployments to so many different countries. I loved when I became a flight instructor and I got to teach other crew members new systems and how to meet up in flight with supersonic jets that needed fuel. You know, it was it was really a fantastic privilege, and I really felt, you know, that I, I loved that. But, you know, when I wasn't flying, I was seeking out those other creative challenges because I felt that, that passion to create. You don't get to be creative in a, in a cockpit with a checklist. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of creativity going on there. Well, because it's rote. Exactly. And the only time you get to be creative is when things break and, you know, you think you might die and you have to think on your feet and replan a mission. And, and those things happen, but that's not the kind of creativity you want on a daily basis. So... You know, when I wasn't flying, I was seeking out other challenges because of that creative passion, you know, that, the newsletter I mentioned, and just doing other creative things. Um, and currently, passion is still a very important role because I, I just it has to be an important role in my career because I just really feel we have a limited number of days in our lives, and I really feel they all must count. And without passion in my work, I just wouldn't be able to do it. Um, it wouldn't work, and I could not create or create effectively without passion. I mean, I can't even imagine um, trying to do that. So I think that people need to go find a, a quiet space and, and think, you know, ask themselves those questions that, that you hear people say you need to ask yourselves, like, you know, what did you do as a child that made you happy? And if you won the lottery tomorrow, what would you do the next day? And and those kind of things to really let yourself identify those things that you love because I think too many people, they take these um, those battery tests of what are you good at. And this is classic, right? What right. are your strengths? What are you good at? And it says that you're good at filling in spreadsheets. Okay, well, that's nice. You know, I'm good at filling in spreadsheets, but I don't want to fill in spreadsheets, and that's not my passion. And I think people focus on identifying their strengths and what they're good at, like a skill, and they don't spend as much time focusing on the passion. Um, I'll tell you what I did in that transition time back in Washington State with the Hubble Group. Uh, the ladies said to me, you know, they heard me talk about what I thought I wanted to do, and they said, you need to stop. You need to just stop moving around, stop looking for new things, and stop and do a self-assessment. You have too much potential, too much energy, uh, you know, but you have no idea what you want to focus it on. So stop and understand your passions and interests um, with the self-assessment. And so I thought that was excellent advice, to stop and assess yourself, assess what you love. And I think that would really help a lot of the folks that you talk to who haven't yet done that. They've just been working. They've been going from position to position because somebody said you would be very good at and they go do that thing um, instead of asking is that something that I would really love and is that leading me to some some end goal that I see for myself and um, it just requires stopping. Well I stopping always ask the question is this something you want to do or you feel is it something you should do right. and I think quite often people can't differentiate between wanting to do something and should do something. Right. Because True. if you've grown up and your parents have told you, 
you need to do this and you follow them, that's the should. But it, it could also be the want, but it may not. Right. So differentiating between wanting to do something and you should do something, I think that's really key, don't you? I do, and and I see a lot of, of what you're saying. And I think there's a lot of pressure on college graduates that they should go out and get some job in their degree that makes them a lot of money. Right. And maybe along the way they wanted to change their major, or they did, and they don't want to disappoint somebody. And, and maybe a few years into their professional life, now people they think that somebody is expecting them to do the next thing, and they, again, they don't want to disappoint. And that's looking outward instead of looking inward. And and it is. It's, it's a very different um, exercise to put yourself through. But um, I really believe that the only way you end up actually happy as you look back to how you spent your time is when you're true to that, um, to what you discover when you look inside. And that's the want, the looking inside. The want. Yeah, the want. That's, and and yeah, you have to give yourself permission to identify the want because it seems that everybody else is focusing you on another direction. And uh, that's actually some of the advice I got from Julia Hubble back in that group. Yeah, and um, well, I think she, that's yeah. why so many people have contacted me over the years, telling me that you know they just finished a law school or medical school or some type of professional school, and they really don't want to go into those either. Mm-hmm. And that's an issue, right? Um, you know, they've invested so much, but they don't want to proceed, and that's because they've been following the path of should not the path of want. You set a standard against which no one can compete. You set higher and higher standards for yourself. How do you go about doing this, Grace? Hmm, that's a good one. Let's see. I I think this might actually come from way back when I set my sights on the number one university in the country, you know, for what I wanted to study at Cal Berkeley. But you're right, you know, I haven't much considered what was number one or, or number two or number three. And maybe it's because I'm the oldest of five kids and number one just felt natural. Um, maybe so. Um, as I think about it, though, it, it does take a great deal of inner confidence to be committed to high standards because you really can't be committed to meeting high standards without confidence, can you? And, uh, you know, I another reason is when I was in the military, the, the high standards definitely were reinforced. My, my sense that I already had were definitely reinforced. If you think about it, when you're flying and training other people to fly in multi-million dollar weapon systems and military engagements over enemy airspace, you really don't want to end up in the number two position, do you? So I think those experiences um, helped keep me always looking you know, ahead and, and higher, higher and higher standards. And I, I do remember during the career transition um, identifying, you know, researching and listing the names of the top five communications companies in the world and being very clearly focused that I wanted to be part of one of those five. And indeed, Siemens you know, was at, you know, and is one of those top ones. And I was very deliberate about that. So um, when the opportunity arose, I knew I had to be successful in pursuing it. So I think it comes from, from early on and in wanting to be part of the best and being committed um, and confident enough to go after that. In five years, what will you be doing? Will you have a new core identity? In five years, I see two possibilities. I haven't really decided which way it's going to go. In five years, I could see myself... Um, teaching at a business school. That would be something I would really love to do. Um, I had the opportunity to do a lot of teaching and instructing and mentoring uh, in the military, and I do some of that now with with an intern um, that just is very recently out of college. It's something that I very much enjoy doing. So I could see myself in five years um, making my way into uh, a teaching position, uh, hopefully at Cal. The other thing I see myself doing possibly is uh, running for office, and that's 
more vague. I haven't thought that through as much other than it seems like a, a calling I'd like to honor. Um, but in either case, I think it'll definitely build on the skills that I'm building now uh, to take me into one of those new identities. But you never know. You know, this industry is actually very dynamic, uh, very fluid, and it's completely fascinating still. Um, I might just stick around and see what happens in five years. So I don't know yet. <laughs> check, check back with me. You can be rest assured I'll definitely check back with you. You are married and have three children. How do you balance your professional and personal life? Ah, uh, yes. So I described a lot of organizational change in my in my company. So while all that change was happening, I also had those uh, three children, as you mentioned, in five years, um, including one severely premature baby, uh, my first, who is blind but otherwise an incredibly spunky, smart, active little girl. And um, my kids are now seven, four, and two, and my universe revolves around them and my husband. So a secret to this this elusive balance that people seek, my secret, is that I took my manager's advice several years ago and I did what she did when I had my second child. And what we did is my husband and I invited an au pair to live with our family to ensure uh, loving and constant, uh, excellent child care for our kids while really alleviating logistical problems and chaos in the mornings for ourselves. And having this um, in-home child care, Arlene, really allows us the flexibility of scheduling, you know, time for ourselves, my husband and myself, so we continue to honor and preserve our marriage. You know, and we are always aware that we were there before the kids were. We were a couple before we were parents, and we never lose sight of that. Um, so, we, you know, we're in year five now of, of hosting young ladies from outside the U.S. to live with us, and our family couldn't be happier. I think that's a very important part of this um, to, to keep it all going. It's like a well-oiled machine over here, lots of moving parts. But uh, that's a big key. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the ability to have a flexible work schedule um, because a lot of activities happen during a, a typical work day, right? You need to be able to work when you work and um, be there for your kids when you need to be there for your kids. We have turbulent times. What advice do you have for the unemployed? Three things come to mind. Um, I think we've said this phrase several times, but I really do take it to heart, and I think it's the first thing people need to really take to heart and, and ponder, and that's the idea of managing the process, as you say in your book. You know, whether you feel that change is needed in your own career or whether change has been thrust upon you in the form of a layoff, um, you need to take specific steps to make change happen, really owning it and understanding that it's yours to manage. And I really think your book helps people do this very well. Um, if I could tell you, you know, recently I was at Google headquarters for uh, an Ashimba event, and a man came up to me, introduced himself, and he was a technical sales professional. He had recently lost his job, and he was trying to figure out how to make changes that he knew he needed before whatever came next. And it was funny. I, I just jumped straight to your language. I told him that he needed a blueprint, and I recommended your book. Uh, the Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way. And six weeks later, he wrote back to me to thank me and tell me he was well on his way to do a series of new interviews after getting methodical about the process. Methodical was his word. And I, I really believe that step one is you must own it. You must create your blueprint. If you've been laid off, wow, what a great time to stop and look inward and have those want discussions with yourself. Um, you know, I've seen many people start job searches by saying, what am I qualified to do? And then eliminating themselves from consideration from 90% of what's possible for them. Um, instead of saying, what do I want to do passionately every day of my life? And as we said before, these are very, very different questions. So I think step one is start with the blueprint that includes your passion. Secondly, in, in these days of, you know, way too many job sites on the web, um, as I advise my intern, you know, please don't waste your time trolling around on the web looking for jobs. I just don't see that as a good use of time. You know, the statistic I saw on this recently was something like 2% of jobs are filled with candidates contacting companies for jobs. 
So this means 98% of the time, that doesn't work. And the time that you're spending looking at various websites for jobs, uploading your resume, then waiting and hearing nothing, I've seen that lead to incredible disappointment and a sense of failure for people because they think they're not qualified and there's really no jobs out there. Um, but you know what, what they need to understand is that rarely when you're spending time doing that and uploading a resume, rarely is any person actually looking at it. You're really just feeding a database. So a smarter way to use the web is to find jobs that interest you and then tap your personal network to help you find a way to get to the hiring managers. And I know you address this in your book with the probing, right? Absolutely. Well, that's why I talk about in my book uh, the, the necessity of not just contacting people that you know, but also making cold calls to companies mm-hmm. to talk with people to figure out if the position is really the right fit, to mm-hmm. show why you are the right fit for it, and if you are, then to proceed and arrange an appointment and send your resume subsequently. In terms of what you had mentioned about sending out your resume on the web, I refer to it as blasting your resume from Burbank to Bombay. Right. That basically it's a waste of time. Right. Yep. Race, and, and again, the, the disillusion that comes with it, I think, is very counterproductive to people um, that they think they're really applying for jobs and they're really not. They're feeding the database. Um, so what, what I wanted to say after what you just said, I, I thought of a very important point is th- this is what I ultimately did during my transition is I got in the habit of, help, of asking other people to help, um, doing informational interviews to find out you know, information I didn't already have about a position, you know, another way of probing, and you know, really going to that personal network um, once you know the blueprint. Because if you think about it, when I sent that email to my personal network, uh, could I ever have done that if I didn't know what I wanted? No. I really did have to start with myself, identified what, what I wanted, and then I asked people to help me find it. And um, thirdly, Arlene, I think people need to really just, after they look inside themselves and the kind of functional role that they like to play and what they like to do, is to look for those kind of opportunities within sectors that are hiring and will be hiring. And three come to mind, and maybe you have more you know, education and healthcare and uh, this category of green technologies, you know, renewable energy and such. Um, and if you don't feel qualified to go into those, well, we're back to manage the process, right? You can ask people in your personal network, who can you have lunch with that can give you an overview of the industry? Or who do you know that's in that organization. And another tangible step people can do is find a class to learn the lingo of one of those industries that you're not familiar with. And a specific example is a friend of mine who had very solid marketing skills and wanted to go into biotech. She was in software. She wanted to go into biotechnology. So what did she do? She knew she needed to bridge the gap. She found a lingo of biotech course at a community college and took it and then successfully transferred her skills to the new industry only two months after completing the course. So, you know, manage the process, and it really is possible. So those are three things that people can do, you know, who find themselves, you know, um, currently not working or wanting to otherwise change. Well, I think the underlying um, thing is that we need to adopt a new mindset, and that's the right fit mindset. Instead of doing things the same old way, we need a new protocol, and that's what we've basically been talking about today. Exactly. Grace, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. I want to thank you for being a wonderful guest, as well as a great storyteller in Win Without Competing. When your story arrived in my email box, and I started reading it, at that moment I made the decision to invite others to become storytellers because you inspired me. I hope you will join me again soon to share more about your career and your life. Thank you, Arlene. It was a pleasure, and I would be delighted to join you again someday. Thank Thank you so much. Next Wednesday, 
February 11th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Please join me again. My guest will be Patty Reggae, former chairman, president, and publisher of Nursing Spectrum, a division of Gannett Company, publishers of USA Today. Nursing Spectrum reaches more than 1 million registered nurses. Patty will share her journey from hospital nurse to high-powered executive to, I will let Patty tell you what she is doing now. If you would like to learn more about Patty's career and her life before her appearance on this show, you can read her story in Win Without Competing. I look forward to hearing from you. Please email me at drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com or call me directly, 310-441-5305. Perhaps you would like to be a storyteller in my next book. Until next time, remember this trigger tip. It's all up to you. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, and Career Coach One. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.